120 gathered, just like Jesus told them to. And then he came. The Holy Spirit came. It, it, there was a mighty wind, and, and there were columns of fire. And the Spirit took residence of all those believers. And life changed drastically for them and for everybody in Jerusalem. Thousands came to faith. They were emboldened. They went out and told the good news. The message that the Messiah had come, the long-awaited Messiah, that Jesus was Savior, and he was the one who died on a cross. He shed his blood so he could pay your debt and my debt. And then he was placed in a tomb. And three days later, he arose, and he spent weeks with these disciples, reminding them over and over and over, hey, I'm alive. I'm alive. And I've come to give life. <laughs> I've spent so much time with you guys. It's now time for you to get this message out. Well, it did. And the Acts 2.42 community formed. This group of believers were devoted to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to meals and to prayer. Oh, the community was tight. But things did get a little bit difficult in that first century. We know that. There was a little persecution. There were probably loss of jobs. And the church, these communities, stepped up. And they began to sell property and begin to help those who needed financial assistance. And then if you were with us last week, a very hard passage, a passage that I am sure shook you up. It shook me up. But there was a couple, Ananias and Sapphira. And, and they were actually a godly couple. And they wanted to be part of this. But the problem was, is they deceived Peter. And they literally lied to God. Their hypocrisy and dishonesty was sin, and it was judged. Their death served as a wake-up call for the church. Sin offends a holy God and hurts the church. We learn that people can receive the Holy Spirit, its salvation, without yielding to its power and sanctification or walking in the Spirit. The sin of Ananias and Sapphira reminded the church that Christians can appear one way on the outside while harboring sin on the inside. 
The church also learned that God's grace doesn't make him soft on sin. He is still the holy, righteous God who deals, well, drastically with rebellion. So fear, great fear, gripped the entire church and everyone else. This fear was more than a respectful cognitive awe for the holiness and the power of God. In fact, I need to let you know, I was gripped by fear this past week. I spent time looking at my thoughts and my actions And even asking God that maybe I don't see sin the way you see sin, God. What sin have I put in categories? What sin have I just dismissed as small or insignificant? And throughout this week, as I opened up the scriptures and just listened. Fear of God began to rise up in a new and a fresh way. I have to ask you, church, not all of you were here last week, and and maybe this seems even a little bit odd, but, but if you were, did God's word change Anything for you? Did you see God differently or sin differently? I normally don't do this, but but I'm going to just stop right here. I'm going to ask each one of you just to pause and to talk to God. And then I'll pray. Let's do that. Father, oh Father, you are a good, good Father. We gather here today to to worship, to hear from you. I admit, and I think maybe we admit, that we are often distracted when we enter this worship center. Today, Father, we're asking that you would give us a realignment that we would see you clearer. Because we know, we know that a clear view of you brings awe. It brings fear. It brings respect. When we see you clearly, Lord, our sin feels more heinous and dark. Our repentance is filled with tears and remorse. 
And we are so grateful for your grace and your forgiveness. Would you extend? Father, when we see you clearly, our worship is filled with passion. So grateful that you are sovereign. I needed that this morning, Lord. I needed to be reminded about your faithfulness, about how great you are, how holy you are, how powerful you are. I'm not sure why I forget those things, Lord, but my heart soared this morning. Lord, when we see you clearly, our prayers are heartfelt. Well, We're talking to you as our dad. But we also recognize your power, your authority. You are king. We get confused at times. Lord, when we see you clearly, our ears are open. We are so tuned into your life-giving words. We are ready to obey, knowing that you only give us what is right and good. Father, I pray that there are no distractions this morning, especially by the preacher. I pray, Father, that, that your spirit would do his work in us today. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we thank you for this church for the church, for all of the churches in our neighborhood, in our state, in our country, Father, in our world, all over. We pray that this church, your church, your bride would be bold and that we would be clear in witness. We ask all these things in your son's name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. We're in the book of Acts. You can turn to Acts chapter 6. But we're talking about the church. And the church was born. This early church was alive and it was growing and was experiencing God in new and fresh ways. The church, perhaps at this time, by Acts chapter 6, had grown to about 20,000. We know at least 5,000 men. And if you start adding spouses and children, yet in the midst of God's divine plan, there were challenges and obstacles. Leaders were incarcerated and beaten. Public gatherings were frowned upon. And financial security for those new believers, well, they were threatened. They met these challenges by walking in the Spirit, by sound preaching, by dealing with sin, and praying for more boldness than protection. We fast forward over 2,000 years and look at the church, even our church. You know, if I 
go back in time just a little bit. During the 50s and the 60s, and again, some of you weren't even around. I get it. But they were most affluent times for folks in the United States, if you go back. It was after the Great War, and, and jobs started to get better, and money started to be made. For the most part, the stateside church at this time, during the 50s and the 60s, was lethargic and comfortable. Political unrest and protests became more common, and violence forced the America, our America, to think differently about our world. The church was also forced to think about the church differently. I experienced and was in school during the 70s rebirth in the church. Now, I'm not saying that during the 50s, 60s, or especially in the 70s, there weren't good churches and healthy churches and growing churches. There were. But for the most part, they had become comfortable. The cultural climate inclu- or, or encouraged the church back then to think outside their box, to experiment and break away from empty traditional religion. The lack of fruit forced leaders to listen to the Spirit, asked hard questions, and the courage to experiment. It was at this time that churches began to grow in a crazy wild way, and some even evolved into megachurches. Now, I was in seminary at this time, and in seminary, the classes were hopping and the discussions got quite heated. Books and seminars tried to explain why some churches flourished while others wilted. People said, if you had a bus ministry, that would help. There was arguments between expository and topical types of preaching. What about contemporary and traditional worship? It was at this time that drums, for the most part, were introduced. Something so very common for us. There there was discussions. Should we be aggressive with our evangelism? I spent many afternoons at O'Hare Field and at train stations sharing the gospel. Or should we go a little bit more friendship, evangelism, get to know others, and then share the good news with them? There was social and community action that started. Short-term mission trips, hardly before this ever happened. And in the 70s, it started to grow. Parachurch organizations, Crusade or Crew Now, and InterVarsity, and some of these, they started to flourish. There was new ways. The church in particular that I was at, I can just tell you, buses changed Sunday school and the Iwana ministry. We were bringing so many kids in because of buses that literally the church went through a building program, put two stories on top of their gym in order to, well, hold all the kids. Wow. I personally noted 
that growing churches were those with wise, adaptable, spirit-led leaders who were guided by tradition, but not constrained by tradition. It was like the early church leaders. Folks in these churches expected change and embraced change. Change was rather normal because that's what God did in their lives. And that's what happened in the ministries. So let's look at this new community through the lens of Scripture and listen to the Spirit as he teaches us about the church. Acts chapter 6, verse 1. But as believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. The Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers, saying that their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. Say, whoa, Rick, this is powerful. Let me try to explain. First of all, there's, there's a big but here. Things were moving forward. Things again were growing. God was working in miraculous ways. But somehow, in Acts chapter 6, verse 1, there was a problem. Growth caused some practical problems in the Jerusalem church. People complained, and there was disunity. Now let me assure you, conflict in the church is a reality. Today, the simple solution to most conflicts is to split the church. But churches must learn how to deal with conflict well so they can stay on mission together. And as you stick with us all the way through Acts, you will see how this happens in the early church. Because dealing with conflict well well, it strengthens the church, and it is an unbelievably strong testimony. Now, let me try to explain what's going on here. At this time, all the believers were Jewish, every one of them in this church. Yet the church was filled with two very different Hebrew groups, and they both had very different backgrounds. Let me again try to explain. The Greek-speaking Jews were redeemed. They had come to faith. They were believers. They were part of this church. They had the Holy Spirit. But they were known as Hellenists. Some of your versions probably say that instead of Greek-speaking Jews. They're called Hellenists because they adapted many or adopted many Gentile customs and had assimilated into their communities. They embraced the Roman culture by dressing like Gentiles, socializing with Gentiles, and even adapted Greek as their primary language. The Hellenists, though, in this church were probably the minority. The Hebrew-speaking Jews... They were also redeemed. They also were God followers. They also received Christ as their personal Savior. But 
they grew up in a traditional Jewish environment. They were quite Jewish in their dress, in their manner of life, in their customs. They had followed the Mosaic Law and had participated in many of the traditional temple sacrifices and worship practices. Whereas the Hellenists tried to embrace the Roman culture, oh, this group, the Hebrew-speaking Jews, carefully shunned anything Gentile, including their language. These two groups were part of the same church. Two distinct groups. The inevitable happened. There was conflict. Now I also need to point out one other thing that will help you understand how important this is. Many destitute people had joined the church. In the first century... No one needed more help than widows. And I'm not even trying to demean any group in our culture, but realistically in the first century, just like many other ancient cultures, they gave value only to those people who they thought were valuable or could add to the clan or add to the culture. So really in this culture, widows were valuable, or were valueless. They were a burden. They couldn't do, well, things like bear children anymore, which was really important. And realistically, at least in this culture, they often died of hunger and exposure. Now, it was very different for widows in the Hebrew culture because they had believed that you honored God when you honored widows and orphans. Very different outlook. So apparently the good tradition of caring for widows had been adopted by the church, which helps us understand the Hellenist complaint. Basically, they were saying, hey, we get, we're part of this church, but our widows, they're getting ripped off. Literally, they're getting overlooked. They're not getting their share. Verse number 2, Acts 6, verses 2 through 4. So, in light of this conflict, the 12 called a meeting of all believers They said, we apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God, not running a food program. And so, brothers, select seven men who are well-respected and are full of the spirit and wisdom. We will give them this responsibility. Then we apostles can spend our time in prayer and teaching the word. The leaders called the meeting. They gathered the believers. They shared truth. And realistically what they were saying is they couldn't do all the work of the ministry. They weren't there to do it all. This was not an excuse. It wasn't. It was a reality. God had called these 12 men to teach, 
preach, lead, and pray, not to minister to every individual need in every person. Now, let me remind you that Acts is more descriptive than prescriptive. So there are many other scriptures that help us clearly understand these leadership roles. But right here in this text, we have some described. This text helps us understand how important it is for your pastor and actually the other elders to focus on teaching, leading, and praying for the church. It also shows how important it is for those who are part of the church to embrace their leadership and learn from their teaching and prayer. The early apostles recognized the need to organize. They established roles so the church could care for its members. That was important. But they also needed to make sure that they could fulfill their primary role of making disciples. So, the leaders shared their God-given plan and charged the church. Why don't you select or literally observe by inspection and examination? Make sure you look at these guys' lives. Why don't you pick seven men? No one knows why seven. Apparently they thought that would be able to carry the load. But I want you, the apostle said, to pick people who meet three criteria. They must have a good reputation. They must be filled with the Spirit. And they must be full of wisdom. Now granted... Men who are spirit-filled will bear fruit of the Spirit. They will have love and joy and peace and kindness. They'll be gracious. They'll be forgiving. They'll be and display the fruit of who God is. They won't be perfect, but, but they will be led by the Spirit. So realistically, if they are spirit-filled, they're going to have a good reputation and they will have wisdom. Now, godly leaders will oversee this ministry, an important ministry, a ministry that needs to happen. A ministry, though, that is needed in order to free up the leaders so that they may do the role that God has given them. In fact, I can say this, that these criteria will always be used to choose leaders, and even in some cases, dismiss leaders. But in this early church, their race, their politics, or the length of time in community didn't matter. What mattered? Did they have a good reputation? Did they walk with God? And were they wise? Well, let's see what happened. Look at verse 5. 
everyone liked the idea. And they chose the following. Stephen, a man of faith and the Holy Spirit, Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Paramenas, and Nicholas of Antioch, an earlier convert to the Jewish faith. These seven were presented to the apostles who prayed for them as they laid their hands on them. Everyone liked the idea. They supported the leadership. Seven men were chosen. And again, not given a whole lot of details, but apparently enough to do the job. The leaders gave the criteria, and the flock did the choosing. It's interesting right here again that we don't have the logistics here. We don't know how they literally chose. We don't know how many discussions went on. But what ended up probably doesn't shock you, but back then probably would have shocked that early church. Because what's interesting is Probably all of these men chosen were Hellenists. They all had Greek names. Now again, maybe they weren't and maybe the names didn't matter that much, but probably this early church knew the best people that would take care of, well, the Greek-speaking widows would be the Greek-speaking believers. Eventually, as you look further on in the New Testament, the folks with this role would be known as deacons. And again, that term is literally, literally translated those who serve tables or those who are servants. So the apostles, leaders publicly commissioned them by laying hands on them and praying. Again, that might seem a little odd, but I think the practice is probably a good practice. Whenever anybody would lay their hands on a shoulder, lay their hands on a head, what they would be doing, they would be symbolizing and passing the authority to that person. And so I can see the gathering. Seven guys were chosen. They, they were brought up. The apostles all surrounded them. And they began to thank God and pray for every one of these individuals. You see, the distribution of food wasn't a lower job. The distribution of food wasn't a secondary job. It was an important role as every role in the church is. God designates certain people for certain roles. Laying on the hands symbolizes how actually what the apostles felt. Then let's go to verse 7. Acts chapter 6, verse 7. So God's message continued to spread. All this 
conflict happened. They worked out the conflict. And verse 7, so the Lord's message continued to spread. The number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem, and many of the Jewish priests were even converted. So after the conflict and the resolve of the conflict, the church grew. The message spread. Now I'm sure it was the gospel message. But I also think the message about that community spread. You know, we want to tell you about all the wonderful things that Jesus has done and that the Messiah is here and that the Savior is here. But we also want to let you know that there's a community that is following Jesus. It meets together. We learn about him. We have fellowship with one another. We pray together. We enjoy meals with one another. That news also went out. And what about the news about the widows? You know what? If you come to this place, if you're part of this community, our whole culture, well, sees widows and orphans as disposable, as Dixie Cups. <laughs> Not us. We, we care for you. This is important for you to understand. And the news went out, and the church kept growing. You know, we come to the end of our text, at least for this morning. The debate over church polity will continue until Jesus returns. But there's always going to be two extremes. One extreme I call loosey-goosey, which just means, hey, we'll just kind of, you know, administrate the church any way we want. The Spirit will lead us, and we'll just know what to do. The other extreme is to run it like a Fortune 500 company and making sure everything is happening at the proper order and all the training is done. I actually think in the church both extremes are dangerous. The church is not a commune or a corporation. It's an organism. It's a healthy mix of leadership and organization. It allows for structure, yet gives the spirit the flexibility to work. The early church is a fine example of an interdependent organism. I bet you won't find this surprising, but it's what the Apostle Paul calls the body of Christ. Very different. Looks different. Acts different. But everything works together listening to the head. Now bigger ministries call for more organization and probably more potential for conflict. But all churches need godly leaders and flexibility. But clear organization. You know, before I wrap up, I thought I'd kind of just try to bring together 
um, what God is teaching us from our text today. First of all, I think God is teaching us about good, strong church leadership. Strong leadership doesn't guarantee the absence of problems. Strong leaders stay focused on their roles and their mission, but are also focused on the church's mission. Strong leaders listen well. They adapt and they lead. And I think strong leaders share the load with godly people. Now what about a healthy church community? Oftentimes, busyness can blur our priorities and increase our confusion. I think diversity in a church strengthens the church. I think it's important to bring complaints to leadership, not to each other. I think believers listened and responded favorably favorably to God's leadership. And I also think that roles evolve. All roles are important and strengthen the church. But I think the size and the place and what God has called each church to do defines more of their roles. You see, this early church moved forward. It was diversified, yet stronger after conflict. The enemy was alive. It had already tried persecution and corruption. Now the enemy was trying to destroy this church by disunity. A unified, well-taught church will be a powerful witness to a lost world. It will inspire us and encourage us for the mission that God has given us. You know, the task is unfinished. The adventure continues next week in the book of Acts. But what's exciting is that each one of us get to be part of it. For such a time as this, God has you here. For such a time as this, He has you at cross point. And for such a time as this, God is going to use His church to make disciples who make disciples. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your word. Lord, we had no idea how to deal with thousands and thousands of people. But God, you showed us that you are the head of the church. You appoint leaders. You give wisdom. You give us the ability to be on mission with you. Lord, by the time this book ended, the whole known world 
and known about you. Churches were planted all over the world. Your good news, your grace extended and people's lives were transformed. God, you're doing the same thing today. And we thank you. And we love you. And we are grateful. In Jesus' name.